All right, explorers, are you ready for a brand new day of discovery? Let's get into the Fun Kids Science Weekly. This is the show, it's our club of explorers where we unpack the universe to uncover all the science secrets that you've never heard before. And from this week, check it out, it's bigger and better than ever with more guests, more discoveries and more of your questions answered. This week, we'll hear how phones talk to each other without any wires. So from your phone, it goes to a cell phone tower. Then it would get converted over to the internet. Then it's going to go through an undersea cable under the Atlantic Ocean, a fiber optic cable. Then it's going to go across the United States to wherever it needs to go on another fiber optic cable. And then (laughs) then it's going to get converted back into radio waves at the tower over here in my neighborhood. And then it's going to hit my cell phone. And we'll have experts battling it out to prove their science is the best, starting it off by heading underground. We all need soil. We all depend upon the food that comes from soil. I think it's around 95% of our food is grown in soil. And we, without that, well, there's no us on the planet or nothing, and not much else either. So all the plants, all the animals, they all rely on soil. And I've got your questions answered as always. We will find out how you actually make noises. It's all on the way in a brand new Fun Kids Science Weekly. Let's kick things off with your science in the news. Researchers at the world's biggest particle accelerator in Switzerland have come up with an idea for a new one, a much larger super collider. Its aim is to discover new particles that they think would revolutionise physics and lead to a much bigger understanding of how the universe works. If approved, this idea will be three times larger than the current giant machine what happens is it's like a big donut and they fire particles around really quickly to smash them together and hopefully new particles are made from that and it answers really big science questions the problem is it'll cost 12 billion pounds and that price tag has raised some eyebrows. Some scientists say that it's reckless to send, spend that much money, but others say that it's really important to try and understand dark matter and dark energy. Also, a very unique species of flying reptile that lived 168 million years ago has been discovered on the Isle of Skye in Scotland. This is a pterosaur. Its wings, shoulders, legs and backbone were found in a rock on a beach on the Isle of Skye, but the fossil's skull was missing. Very strange. And scientists have been very surprised to find a pterosaur from this period. They all thought they mostly lived in China. So to have them turn up the other side of the world, on an island, in Scotland... Well, it's very strange indeed. And finally this week, what scientists think might be the first great white shark baby a pup ever seen in the wild has been spotted. It was seen off the coast of California in the USA. Let's find out more. Jules Bernstein is from the University of California, Riverside, and can tell us more. Jules, thank you so much for joining us. Just tell us, how was this discovery made? So this discovery was made uh, July 9th last year in the summertime off the coast of Santa Barbara, off the coast of California. So a UC Riverside biology doctoral student and his friend who, um, well, who films sharks with a drone for a living, 
were out doing what they do. They were um, in a location where they know sharks like to congregate out on a summer afternoon, hoping to see some sharks. And they were actually about to pack it up for the day, from what I understand, when all of a sudden they realized they were seeing something on the viewfinder of the drone camera that they were not expecting to see. It was a pure white, white shark. Usually great white sharks are gray and white, but this one was pure white and it was very small. And it was appearing in a location where they had seen a pregnant female only the day before. And so they realized, oh my gosh, I think what we're seeing is a newborn great white. And they they did some more analyzing of the footage that they got and realized, indeed, it's very likely that that's what they saw. And so they wrote a paper about it to let some other shark scientists know what they saw. And the other shark scientists said, well, maybe that white film that you saw on the shark was actually a skin condition and not evidence that it's a newborn. And they said, perhaps, although no pure white skin condition has ever been recorded for a great white shark, no one's ever heard of that skin condition. So if it is a skin condition, that's a really interesting finding too, because no one's ever seen that before on a great white shark. But the size of it and the location of it, particularly uh, where a pregnant female had been spotted only a few mere hours before made them really quite certain it was a newborn shark they were seeing. There's a lot of coincidences that would have to be at play if it were not a brand new pup, great white shark. So you mentioned that these two students, they did some analysis to try and figure out how old it was, how new it was. And you mentioned a a white film there. Just tell us more about a, a great white shark pup because they've been pretty sneaky. We've never spotted one in the past. Yeah, no one's ever seen a newborn baby shark alive. There have been ones found deceased, uh, which means dead for those people that aren't familiar. But basically, female great white sharks give birth to live pups, kind of the way humans give birth to live babies. Well, sharks do that same thing. They don't lay eggs. They actually give birth to a wholly formed pup. And the mothers uh, inside where they harbor the babies, they have this nourishment that they feed their babies. Uh, It's like a type of milk that comes out of the mother in the uterus. And the babies are likely covered with it when they come out. So you'll see if you look at pictures of the shark that this white stuff was shedding as the newborn was swimming which makes us further believe it's not skin. It's actually the milk that was slowly coming off of it. So you can see in some of the pictures, there's the white film is actually shedding as the shark swims. Wow, it's amazing, isn't it, that we we have known about these animals for so long, yet we've never seen a pup, uh, a newborn in the wild. And, And I mean, it was small, but I think it was still pretty big, right? It was five foot long, which is, well, almost as tall as me, Jules. That's a big baby. Amazing. And what a discovery. It's been so fantastic to hear about it. Jules Bernstein, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So that's what this new Bigger and Better Than Ever Fun Kids Science Weekly is all about. Hearing from all experts all over the world telling us fascinating stories of what's happening on the planet of science. Some things stay the same, like this, where I get to answer your questions, and it's still my favourite part of the show. If you're wondering something, if you're confused about anything around the universe, well, 
Ask it as a question to me and we'll find out. We will do the digging. A few ways that you can get in touch. The best way is by leaving it as a voice note on the free Fun Kids app or at funkidslive.com like this from Charlotte. I would like to know, how does the sound come out of your mouth? Thank you, Charlotte. How does sound come out of your mouth? Well, it's all to do with your voice box, which is in your throat. Now, your voice box is made of cartilage, which are small bands of tissue clumped together and they get longer or shorter. Imagine it like a guitar string. You pluck a guitar string and it wobbles and vibrates and that moves the air all around it, which makes a noise. That's why you can really only make a sound when you're breathing out. It makes the bands vibrate. Now, if you tighten that cartilage, it makes a higher pitch sound. If you make it longer and slacker, then you get a deeper sound. Then the sound moves with the air around your throat, through your mouth and nasal passage, where it changes a bit because of the shape of your mouth, which makes the unique way that you talk or the sound that you want if you're singing or something, Charlotte. Thank you very much for that question sent in as a voice note. Here's another one from Francis. How does a mobile phone contact to another mobile phone without a wire? Well, thank you for your question, Francis. Lovely to hear from you. How do phones call without a wire? Well, to help us understand this, we've got the brilliant Marshall Brain on the show who wrote the fantastic How Stuff Works books. Uh, Marshall, thanks so much for being there. Thank you for getting our head around this. Maybe it's good to start thinking about how old school phones work with a wire. Uh, Just bring us up to date with that. If we went back to like the 1870s, and Alexander Graham Bell is creating the first telephone that's practical and is going to spread all around the world. He was looking at the idea of taking the sound waves that are coming out of our mouth and turning them into some form of electricity so that they could go through a wire. And that notion was answered, or the way he solved that problem was he took carbon granules, just charcoal really, and put it between two metal plates. And when our voice hits those metal plates, it compresses those granules and changes their resistance. And by running electricity through it and sending that to a speaker on the other end, something that simple is able to get our voice into a wire And it can go all the way across the country if it needs to. You know, it's just that conversion to electricity. Wow. It's amazing, isn't it, Marshall? That just a little bit of charcoal, as you said, compressed and squashed, it lets a speaker understand what we're saying. And it transforms that back into sound waves. Yes, it is. The is an incredibly simple system. And it's still, if we took one of Alexander Graham Bell's phones from the 1870s, it would still plug in to the United States phone system anyway, and it would still be able to work. It's that part of telephony hasn't changed in 100 years, 150 years. What's amazing, right, is that part hasn't changed, but now we use mobile phones, which don't have any wires. So how is that technology built on what Alexander Graham Bell does? Right. So in a cell phone or a smartphone, you have a little electronics microphone that's using, instead of the charcoal granules, it's using something a little more 
modern and elegant than that. But it's the same idea. It's converting sound uh, into electricity. And then the phone has to convert those sound waves into digital signals that can run on a modern cell phone system. So it turns it into bits or ones and zeros using something called an analog to digital converter. And then it converts that into the same kind of radio waves we would use when we're listening to a radio or listening to a walkie-talkie, something like that. It converts them into those kinds of radio waves, carrying those bits, and those bits (laughs) fly through the air to usually to a cell phone tower that you can see dotted across the landscape. And that tower then converts it back uh, from the digital realm so that it can go through the normal phone system and and make its way uh, around the world. So it's uh, the same basic principle. There's just a little bit more modern computing in the middle to do all the bits. So as it flies through the air, Marshall, so I'm calling you in America now on my mobile phone. Does the signal go straight from my phone all the way to to yours? Does it hit something near me, which then chucks itself across the ocean? How does that sort of thing work? (laughs) Now you're getting into the really interesting stuff. So from your phone, it goes to a cell phone tower. Like I can look out my window and I can see this enormous tall tower that where my cell phone signal goes. Usually the tower is about two miles or less away. Then... Uh, since you're in, in England and I'm in the United States, it would get converted over to the internet into, you know, it stays as bits and it's going to flow on the internet now. And then it's going to go through an undersea cable under the Atlantic Ocean, a fiber optic cable. Then it's going to go across the United States to wherever it needs to go on another fiber optic cable. And then, <laughs> and then it's going to get converted back into radio waves at the tower over here in my neighborhood, and then it's going to hit my cell phone. Oh, it's just mind-blowing, isn't it? All that is happening in seconds, Marshall. How amazing is that? Well, brilliant. Thank you so much for helping us answer Francis's question. I really appreciate you being there. Marshall Brain, thank you for joining us. This has been great. Have a good one. I'm James Stewart, and in Saving Planet Earth, I'm going to be joined by some of the world's top scientists, to introduce you to some of the weird and wonderful ideas being trialled to try and save our planet. Led, of course, by your questions. Hi, James. I know that climate change is affecting our oceans. Is there anything that's being done to look after it? And one of the solutions involves dolphin poo. (laughs) This is Saving Planet Earth. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get into this week's Dangerous Dan then, where we look at some of the most mean, weird, strange, unique and deadly things in the universe. This week we are diving under the ocean to look at the oarfish. Now you'll find the oarfish all around the world in warm, tropical oceans. It's an oarfish spelled O-A-R, like the oar on a boat. Not the oarfish, as in, is it a fish or not? No, it's an oarfish, and it is the largest bony fish alive. And they can be huge. They can grow to 11 metres long, and they look a bit like an eel because they're so long and thin. Their body doesn't have scales, but they have hundreds of tiny, hairy things along the top, little fins that slice through the ocean. And they've got little marks, dots and squiggles across their body that scientists think 
glow in the dark deep down in the ocean. We don't really know that for a fact because we've never been down there to check out. Now, the oarfish doesn't have any teeth that we can see. They eat small fish, shrimp and jellyfish and squid. Now, they sound impressive, right? But it doesn't sound dangerous to us humans. Well, here's the thing. Most of what we know about them is because of remains that we have found of dead oarfish. They live deep down and they're quite sneaky. It's very rare for humans to ever see them alive. So who knows what they're getting up to down there. And when humans do see them alive, legend says that bad things happen because this creature is also known as the Doomsday Fish because of ancient myths that if you see it, it's a warning that disasters like earthquakes can be coming. It's an ancient legend, but it's spooky. And that's enough to get the oarfish on our Dangerous Dan list. It's the Fun Kids Science Weekly, and now for our bigger and better episode this week, we are looking to find the best of the best. What is the best science? Every week we will chat to experts all over the world who will try to prove why their field comes first. And we're starting things off. Heading deep into the ground with soil scientist Professor John Quinton from Lancaster University. John, thank you so much for being there. I must tell you, I'm very excited to start with you because specialising in soil is so unique. What got you interested in it? Wow, that takes me back to meeting somebody in my parents' kitchen who was a soil scientist and travelled the world. And I thought that just sounded like such a cool career that I could get out there, visit different places, try and understand soils and what was making them tick in those different environments. What type of things are you doing every day, though, as a soil scientist? Like, what questions are you asking? What research are you undertaking to get to know it more? Well, I think, number one, we all need soil. We all depend upon the food that comes from soil. I think it's around 95% of our food is grown in soil. And we, without that, well, there's no us on the planet or nothing and not much else either. So all the plants, all the animals, they all rely on soil. So that's number one. Number two, if you think about the biodiversity on the planet, 59% of that is in the soil. So that's a huge number. So you think about kind of, we all think about rainforests and savannas and all these wonderful ecosystems, but they all depend on soil. So all the vegetation is growing in it, all the fungi, the bacteria, all the life, uh, earthworms, all that kind of stuff is all crawling around in the soil. And yeah, there's a lot of it. So that's really, really super important. Carbon store, bigger than all the forests on the planet. It's the biggest terrestrial carbon store that we can actually influence by trying to sequester more carbon. So really important in the climate change debate as well. All the water we drink, most of that is filtered through soil as well. So the soil acts as a filter. It takes out contaminants. It stores water for crops to grow. It looks after archaeology for us. I mean, it's just so many top functions of of soil that we you know, and that, that's, I guess, as a soil scientist, that's what it excites me. It's this, it's almost a, a little bit under the radar as well. People kind of walk and they don't, they don't think about it very much. But when you start to dig a bit deeper, you know, it's, there's all these great functions that it provides for us and for the rest of, of life on Earth. And I guess to go along with that, what's the big question that you want to ask? Or, or maybe what do you want to have answered? 
If you were to leave your job when you retire, what's the one thing you're really excited to find out with soil science? We're doing quite a lot of work on trying to restore soils at the moment. That's one of our big areas of work. So we're working in Africa, in uh, grassland ecosystems, trying to restore the productivity of some of those soils which have been damaged. So soils are, are vulnerable to rainfall, to drought and to other effects, which sometimes it's exasperated by our own activities. So, you know, maybe we have too many animals that are taking away too much vegetation, leaving the soil bare, we get erosion. And so we're looking at ways of, of using natural vegetation to try and prove those soils again and get them back to where they were before they were they were damaged. So that's that's a big theme for us. But we also have work in contamination of soils, particularly through microplastics at the moment. That's a very kind of, you know, topical area. And uh, got one of my students at the moment who's just got some soils from Antarctica, which he's just about to start working on. So even looking at the kind of the spread of the, the plastics through the atmosphere, as well as, you know, our own kind of discarding refuse on soils. So yeah, so we've got some some interesting stuff going on. I think that the, the key thing for me is is how we leave our soils in a better place than they were when when I when I started. And I think there's some I mean I'm not claiming that I'm only responsible for there's loads of soil scientists around the world who are working on this, but finding ways in which we can sustainably manage and enhance those functions that we talked about earlier that, that soils have and provide for us. And particularly doing in that in ways which, you know, ideally avoid heavy use of fossil fuels and ideally reduce the emissions that we associate with, with agriculture and with the effects of fertilizers and so on. So looking for more sustainable ways in which we can manage the productivity of soils to provide food and also these other functions like filtering our water and storing our water as well. Well, the battle has started. Professor John Quinton, soil scientist, thank you so much for giving us the case of why yours is first in the field. It's been a pleasure, Dan. I really loved that part of the show. Brand new, finding out who is first in their field, which is the best type of science. I can't wait for you to find out who's trying to prove theirs is next week on the show. And you know what? While we are underground, let's stay there, shall we? With our chemistry superhero, K-Mystery. This is Karina. She is a genius and her alter ego knows everything about science. And we're actually finding out about the role soil plays in everyday life and how maybe we can harness its power to reduce climate change. K-Mystery. Chemistry and climate. Oh, hey, K-Mystery. So... You're a soil superhero now. Well, you do know there's chemistry in soil, don't you? In fact, there's chemistry in pretty much everything. Come on, I'll show you. Right, let's get back to basics. It's your Soil 101. To start, what is soil? That's easy. It's the muddy stuff you find in the garden, in fields, up hills. Well, yes... But there's more to soil than that. Soil is the thin layer of material that covers the Earth's land surface. It's made from rocks deep underground. It takes many, many years for rocks to weather into soil. In fact, it can take 
2,000 years to make just 10 centimeters of fertile soil. Wow, but what causes a rock to weather? Well, weathering could be the result of water slowly running over a rock or the wind blowing across it. Or it could be from chemical or mineral changes or because of living things, things like tiny microorganisms or insects and worms and even the decaying matter from larger animals. Oh, and here's a top tip. Worms can be the sign of healthy soil. They aerate the soil and also eat organic material. So a big worm population means the soil is rich in nutrients. Soil comes in all shapes and sizes and flavors. You know, forests, peatlands, wetlands, and salt marshes. And flavors? Well, because different rocks are made of different chemicals, these could affect the quality of the soils. Loam soils are great for farming. They're rich in sand, silt and clay, which helps keep the moisture in. Sandy soils are great at draining water, but they don't have as many nutrients. But whatever their background, all soils are important. Because we have to feed everyone? Well, that's certainly part of it. But I still don't get what soils have to do with climate change. Are you kidding? Soils are the largest store of carbon on Earth. In 2017, scientists recorded that whilst the EU had 4.5 billion tonnes of CO2 emissions, here's the amazing thing, there were 75 billion tonnes of CO2 stored in Europe's soil. So that's why it's important to look after the soil, or else... All that CO2 will go back into the atmosphere. I don't get it. How can it go back? It's not going anywhere, is it? Sounds crazy, but yes. You see, cutting down forests, building over fields, even digging or tilling the fields to remove weeds can all reduce or erode the available soil. And by eroding... We mean that the soil becomes thinner and rain and wind can find it easier to wash and blow it away. But how else are farmers going to get rid of weeds without digging? We aren't meant to use harmful chemicals, are we? No, you're right. We have to be careful about what chemicals we add to the ecosystems. And chemists are working on safer herbicides which might solve the problem of weeds without losing soil. It's a kind of balancing act, and plants do their bit too, thanks to the soil they grow in. So as well as soil being a store of carbon, plants grab CO2 out of the air as part of their natural processes. Oh, photosynthesis, right? That's right! You see, plants are an important carbon sink. That's something that takes more carbon from the atmosphere than releases it. Plants can store carbon in their roots, and farmers have found that by growing cover crops between their primary crops, they can maximise the amount of carbon absorbed. And it's all thanks to squidgy, soggy soil. (laughs) 
and you can see why healthy soil is really valuable. If you can't grow any crops in your soil, or there's no soil at all, then the carbon ends up in the air, and that leads to climate change. And there are other amazing ways that soil can help tackle the challenges of climate change. It can help prevent floods from spreading, and water held in the soil can help against droughts. And we're back. Oh, thanks for the insight, chemistry. <laughs> no problem. Always happy to help with a chemistry challenge. And online, you'll find a cool experiment where you can see how many worms there are in one square foot of Dad's vegetable patch. <laughs> Bye for now. Chemistry, chemistry, and climate, with support from the Royal Society of Chemistry. Find out more and get hands-on with chemistry at funkidslive.com/chemistry. And that is it for the bigger and better than ever Fun Kids Science Weekly. Three guests. That's what we're going to do. Maybe even more every single week from now on. If anything you've heard has made you wonder, if it's made you curious, and you're asking questions, well, ask me, and I'll find out the answer. And if I can't find out, I'll ask a really smart genius who absolutely can. Best way that you can leave it is by a voice note on the free Fun Kids app or get to the Science Weekly page at funkidslive.com. Now, we've got loads more podcasts like this on Google, Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your shows. You can also find them on the Fun Kids website too. And Fun Kids, we are a children's radio station from the UK. Listen all over the country on the free Fun Kids app at funkidslive.com. And if you've got a smart speaker, wake it up and ask it to play Fun Kids. I'm James Stewart, and in Saving Planet Earth, I'm going to be joined by some of the world's top scientists to introduce you to some of the weird and wonderful ideas being trialled to try and save our planet. Led, of course, by your questions. Hi, James. I know that climate change is affecting our oceans. Is there anything that's being done to look after it? And one of the solutions involves dolphin poo. <laughs> this is Saving Planet Earth. Available wherever you get your podcasts.